When you hear the word construction, what comes to mind? Is it a remodeling project that you may or may not have tried, attempted, failed, succeeded in? Is it the deck you thought you could build or repair? Is it the, what is it? Is it the bathroom that went way wrong? Uh, When I think of construction, there's one major project that comes to mind. And that is at my last church, Crossroads Community Church in Carroll Stream, when I was there from 2001 through 2008, we went through a building program. And I'll show you the end product here so that you know it turned out okay. Here's the picture of Crossroads Church. A gorgeous building. Took a couple of years to complete. And here's the next picture. Um, even today, praise the Lord, he's going to work filling that building with, uh, with lives that are being changed. But I've got to tell you, I've got some painful memories from that construction process. Uh, it began when we had nothing but soil that we were dealing with. We found out the soil was bad, so we actually had to haul the soil off and, and bring in better dirt. I didn't know there was such a thing as better dirt. It cost a lot of money. Then we found out that um, some of our, they call them silt fences. They're like plastic. They look like garbage bags that, that are draped all around the property. Some of them were in the wrong place. So the county came and shut down the whole project until we fixed the silt fences. Because, you know, you can't have your dirt go onto your neighbor's property or it would be the end of the world. So for months, we had to go through this process, removing them, and we got three stop work orders because of the fences. Um, And then once we got the fences up, and we actually started building, uh, we found out (laughs) that there was like this underground spring of water right at the spot where we decided to pour the foundation. Water just started bubbling up like a brook. It looked like the Beverly Hillbillies, only it was water instead of oil, right where we wanted to pour the foundation. We had to figure out what that was, and thankfully it was just a broken underwater or underground pipe that we had to move. Then when we got the foundation poured, and we started putting up the steel in the roof, and, and we got the, the panels there, <laughs> a tornado came through and knocked all of our walls down and tore the roof off the place. It was a baby tornado, an F1 tornado, and it only traveled one mile before it went back up to the sky. And guess what was within that one mile our building. So we, I mean, there are like these big concrete panels that were supposed to go up and like, you know, rocks went straight through them and put giant holes in them. So we had to get a new roof and we had to get new walls. Finally, we got the walls up, we got the roof up, and then some of the contractors got angry. So they broke into the building at night and vandalized the inside, kicking through cabinets and, and scratching up all the nice doors and punching holes through walls. I wouldn't want to be them on judgment day. It was like one thing after another. Uh, But finally, after all the setbacks, all of the work paid off, and there's now a building there to show for it, and lives are being changed. What do you think of when you think of the word construction? I know what Nehemiah would say. Nehemiah's great construction project for his life was getting the walls of Jerusalem put back up. Last week, we met Nehemiah in the palace of the king, of the kingdom, the empire of Persia, largest empire that the world had known. And there he stood as the cupbearer to the king at the king's side, and and he just told the king, my heart is broken. I want to go back to my people in Jerusalem and help build up the wall. Nehemiah was broken not just over the condition of the physical structures in Jerusalem. You see, that was symbolic of something more. The walls being torn down was symbolic of the spiritual condition of God's people. And Nehemiah was broken over the spiritual ruins in Jerusalem as well. 
And what we're learning from this story about our God is this. Your God can rebuild what your sin has destroyed. That's good news. As you look around the the rubble in your life, the things that are ruined, or if you see loved ones in the church and their lives are ruined, hey, guess what? God calls his church to get to work rebuilding the ruins. The good news is he's going to work on your ruins within you and rebuild you. The better news is he's going to use you to make a difference in the lives of those around you. Nehemiah is going to show us what it means to work for the Lord and to help rebuilding what sin had torn down. Let's pray, and then we'll get some tips from him on working for, for the Lord. Father in heaven, we're just so grateful that you would even, up from heaven, rebuild us, that you would even give us salvation, and yet to find out that you would enlist us to be your work crew, that you would give us a hammer and send us to work, helping other people to put their lives back to get together again, that you would give us hope that we can do more than simply wait for Christ to return, for heaven to begin. We can actually see you hard at work in our hearts, putting back together the brokenness that is so hard to deal with. Thank you for this hope. Speak to us today through Nehemiah's life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, open up your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, just to the left of the center of your Bible. But as I pointed out last week, Nehemiah is not placed in the Bible chronologically. If it were, it would actually be almost toward the New Testament. It's one of the last things to happen in the Old Testament. They just put it in a section Um, toward the middle of the Bible. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Understand that the Israelites had been defeated in battle. It was a disgrace. Uh, The Assyrians came in 722 BC and defeated the northern kingdom um, and, and hauled them off to the ends of the earth and deported them to exile. Then in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians came and they defeated the southern kingdom and and tore down the walls of Jerusalem and burned the temple. It was disgraceful, but it was of God. And the exile, the sending away of God's people into exile, shows the consequences of sin. Sin builds distance between us and God. And the humiliation of having the walls torn down shows what sin does to our character and our reputation. Um, And it also shows about God's judgment. So here, as Nehemiah arrives back, going to work, he's repairing the walls. He's also repairing the relationship between God and his people. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Not all bad. He got a military escort. How would you like to roll into town with like, a, you know, 10 Humvees behind you and a few tanks and, and some foot soldiers and... But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. (laughs) Imagine like in Illinois if another governor rolled into town. Do you think that would go well in the great state of Illinois? Do you think the current governor would just be okay with that? You see, there's jurisdictions and there's power, right? And there's local officials. And who does this guy think he is coming from Susa, the capital? And just, he's just going to take over this jurisdiction that I could show you the map where it's on my watch. So the local officials weren't too happy. And it says here, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. I really wonder what that sounded like. How about, how about you be the bad guys just for a second? And then when I read that, you pretend to be them. Ready? It displeased them greatly. All right, I don't think you're getting this. Hold on. Imagine in your mind like the grumpiest person you know. 
Okay, and just for a moment, you can kind of act like them. Um, so, <laughs> here we go. It displeased them greatly. Ah, like, I think things were being thrown across the room. What do you mean he arrived from where? And he thinks he's doing a new what? And what? Oh, they were so angry that he had arrived. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Don't read past that quickly. Listen, I love it. What my God had put into my heart to do. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring into the dung gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Just put yourself in his position just for a moment. It's nighttime. Who knows if he's ever seen Jerusalem before as he heard the stories of great King David and Solomon and the splendor when, when God had blessed the kingdom. And, and now imagine you're walking along the walls and it's nighttime and the moon is all that's shining and you see giant, giant gaps in the walls where a foreign army had broken through and pillaged the city. And then you come to the gate and, and you see it all torn down and the wood is just in a heap and there's burn marks from where it was on fire and You can almost imagine what it was like that night when the city was burned and the temple was burned. And then then you have images of how glorious it was when Solomon dedicated the temple and, and how awful it was when it was torn to the ground. And then there are places where you can't even get past because the ruin is so... You just can't even move past it. It'd be the equivalent of you taking a tour of D.C. after it had been bombed and seeing the White House torn down, and seeing the Capitol in shambles, and seeing the statues of our great founding fathers lying burned. Must have been heartbreaking. Verse 14, Then I went on to the fountain gate, to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. This is a a beautiful, moving image of what a leader does. There at night, all alone, he's the only one up, seeing first the problem. With a few close servants, few close men, he walked around with a broken heart, and caught a glimpse of what God was about to do. Here's the first thing you can jot down about working for the Lord. First, some must plan the work. Some must plan the work. Leaders bear the weight of seeing the problems first, seeing the opportunities first, being the first responders before anybody else sees it. Nehemiah was awake late at night and where everybody else was at home sleeping. And there's Nehemiah walking around. Some must plan the work. And it says that God put it into his heart. You see, we don't have leaders who just decide, I'd like to be a leader. God will prompt you in your heart to take on more responsibility and to become a leader who gets the work ready for other people to jump on and partner with. And I'm blessed that we have so many leaders at Harvest Palace who lead in various capacities 
who we've raised up over the last several years. Uh, We have, of course, the formal leaders. We have our four elders. We also have two deacons. We also now have four staff pastors, and we also have two administrative assistants who are formally um, leaders. We also have a women's ministry leader team. We have many small group leaders, and by the way, both the men and the women, if they're a couple leading a small group, we call both of them small group leaders. Uh, In addition, we have flock leaders who um, help serve over several small group leaders to give them wisdom and training and and just to to help them if there's any problems. Um, We have ministry leaders on Sunday morning. Brad does an amazing job leading the tech team. We also have Bill Waitek who leads the security team. Uh, we also have the road crew led by Mike Melody and, and, and children's check-in and greeters. And there's leaders everywhere in this church. Um, in fact, if you're a leader and you lead anything of what I just said or even something I forgot to mention, I want our leaders just to stand up for a minute so people can see the leaders that we have in our own church. Go ahead and stand up. If you lead anything at Harvest Palace. Okay, yeah, let's give them a round of applause and honor them. <clears throat> Now, leaders, I want to talk to you specifically during this first point. These principles go for everybody, but I just want to have a small chat here with our leaders. Nehemiah is an example and a role model to us for what we're doing. You see, he's got a physical wall, and he's rebuilding the relationship between God and his people. But do you know in the New Testament that the Lord calls his church many things? It's a family, it's a vine, it's a, he calls it many things. It's a flock, but it's also a building. So imagine that this building, meaning the people next to you, that's God's New Testament construction project. The people all around us, God wants us to be building them up. So leaders, we can learn from Nehemiah how it is that we go about the work. And here's the first thing you can jot down. First, leaders examine the walls. Leaders examine the walls. Leadership begins with an honest assessment of where we are in the construction process. What needs to be built next? And leaders understand that our job here is never finished. Uh, We never finish the work this side of heaven, right? There's always going to be the next addition we're putting on the work, either in the life of a person or or even in the ministry. And I really want to challenge our leaders to have that always moving forward mentality. Because if we get to the point where we act like or we assume we've arrived, ministry complete, never have to improve this again, Um, then things are going to start to deteriorate. Um, We say around here at Harvest that feedback is the breakfast of champions. And in every ministry, we should be hungry to hear how things are going, hungry to find out how we can make the next improvement. That's inspecting the walls. That's examining the walls. Um, You know, our elders get this. Last week, there was a conference at Harvest Naperville where several elder teams from four or five different Harvest churches met. We all met at Harvest Naperville, and and, um, Kent Shaw from the Harvest Fellowship shared with us some principles of leadership. And all of these elders from four or five different churches were so hungry to learn how to do things better. It was a blessing to me. At one point, we had a breakout session where we got into a, a room with our elders and one other pastor who's uh, Pastor Brian White from uh, Harvest Indy North. And he's a little bit older than us in in church planting. So we just sat around the table and there was no end to the questions we had for him. Hey, how do you guys do soul care better? Hey, how are you structuring your small groups with with this? Hey, how are you figuring out staffing um, for the? We just kept asking him, asking him, asking him. Um, And I want that to permeate every ministry in our church. 
How do I do this better? Who can I network with to get it to the next stage? This is called examining the walls. I think when it comes to leaders, we have to be teachable. We have to be honest. We have to be willing to see the cracks. And then we have to plan the improvements. Um, I feel like among the leaders in our church, our small group leaders are like all-stars in my book. Because they understand that we don't meet every week for small groups so that we could just tell people, oh, wow, you've got it all together. We'll see you next week and celebrate that truth again. What do we do? We get together so we can examine the walls. We get together so we can find the cracks and so that we can begin rebuilding lives, right? And our small group leaders are constantly reaching out for, hey, give me some wisdom with what this person is going through. Hey, I want everyone to know how this person's life is being changed. That's examining the walls. Um, And that's what leaders do. Leaders examine the walls. But there's a second thing, jot this down. Leaders motivate others to work hard. Motivate others to work hard. Nehemiah said, I didn't tell anybody, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, the rest, who were to do the work. So as he's walking around, checking out the walls, he's got a little clipboard. He's like, oh, okay, that section's going to be assigned to this person. Oh, wow, this is a big job. I'm going to give it to this family and this group. He's got people in mind who he's going to rally to the work. And by definition, if you're a leader and you're not influencing people around you, you're not a leader, right? If it's only you, who are you leading? You? Wow, that's great. Leader means you rally other people to what God has put in your heart. So leaders examine the walls. Leaders motivate others to work hard. And listen, I just want to give our leaders permission in front of everyone in this church to ask a lot from the people on your ministry team, to ask a lot from the people in your small group. Sometimes we feel like because church is viewed as a volunteer effort that you have to ask less of someone, that you could ask less of them in small group accountability, ask less of them on the road crew. Why? Because, well, they're just volunteering. Hey, that mentality is going to kill the motivation because somebody once said, nobody rises to low expectations. And, And while it's a volunteer thing, we want people to volunteer their very best. Why? Because of who it's for, right? Cain and Abel, if they taught us anything, it's God has a very strong opinion of the offering we bring into his presence. And he can spot lack of heart from a thousand miles away. He wants us to bring our very best. And if a leader somehow appropriates or gives permission to people to give their very least, it makes the Lord angry. But what brings the Lord delight is when we volunteer our very best, regardless of what ministry we're serving in. So leaders, listen. Motivate others to work hard. It's right to provide your team with good supervision. It's right to teach them what it means to have close cooperation. It's right to give them a clear assignment and to ask them to stick to the script. It's right to organize and schedule your ministry. It's right to monitor morale. And if people are having a hard time rising to the expectations, to take them aside and say, hey, listen, this is for the great high king of heaven, and we need your very best every week because it matters. That's what leaders do. Third, leaders don't only examine the walls and motivate others to work hard, but leaders set an amazing example. Set an amazing example. Nehemiah picked up his whole life and moved across the world. He was in danger every step of the way, and when he arrived, he was surrounded by people who wanted to get rid of him. What an example. In fact, when the work begins in chapter 3, verse 1, the first guy on the list who picks up a hammer is Eliashib, the high priest. Give me a hammer. I'm going over there first. I'm going to pick up the hammer. First hammer is mine. 
And he's the high priest. What an example. Leaders set an amazing example of hard work and commitment and dedication. Step up and set the example. Um, And let me just say, I believe that many of you who are serving at Harvest Payless, maybe God's putting it in your heart to take on more responsibility. I can tell you that the thing that we need most in the next few years is more small group leaders. And I want the men of this church, as you're sitting in small group each week, to ask yourself, hey, maybe it's time for me to take the apprentice program and learn how this small group leadership thing works. Hey, maybe it's time for me to multiply this group and to take a group of my own. And I want some of our small group leaders who are doing that to say, hey, maybe it's time for me to consider being a flock leader and to start mentoring three or four other small group leaders. Uh, That's what we need. We need more leaders. We need them to follow the example set before them. Now, maybe you're, you're newer here and maybe you're like, lead, I can't lead anything. Well, you know, that's okay. Because while in the New Testament... The Lord does appoint people to be elders and deacons. Well, I do believe he's going to raise up flock leaders and small group leaders and women's ministry leaders and pastors. Um, The truth is, most people, God wants you to simply find your place and do your part each week. So jot this down. Here's the second point. Some must plan the work, but second, many must partner in the work. Many must partner in the work. And we read on in chapter 2, verse 17 says this, Then I said to them, so he gets everybody from Jerusalem together. It's like a big town hall meeting. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Response? And they said, let us rise up and build. I love this. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Wow. Many must partner in the work. Nehemiah had a a big town rally and he said, we got to get to work. This is humiliating. This is embarrassing. And God put it in my heart. He's going to rebuild it. Let's go. And they raced to the table to pick up the hammers. There was no opposition. There was no why. There was no we're busy. There was no no we can't. It's going to fail. It was instant. Unified. Yes. Many must partner in the work. Who worked? Well, if you read through chapter 3, in fact, go ahead and look at chapter 3 and just start skimming through it. And what you see is the sons of this guy built this. The priests of this did this. This guy was in charge of this. This person repaired this. Look at on and on. And on, name after name after name of people who showed up to the greatest work project that had been done in the Old Testament here by volunteers. Wow. It says here that the high priest worked, the priests. It says sons and daughters, entire families showed up. Governors, goldsmiths, perfumers, rulers, Levites, temple servants, merchants. These are common folks doing common jobs who come out to this work project and get it done. What I didn't see anywhere was was somebody who was a mason or somebody who was a bricklayer or somebody who was a tradesman. None of those are listed. These are all just common people. I'm a perfumer. I'm great with perfume, but I'm going to pick up a hammer and get to work on the wall. Wow. And this was not easy stuff. I've got some pictures here. Check it out. This uh, This is Jerusalem. And even though it's a small picture, all you need to see is to the right is the Temple Mount. And then that, that like oval kind of shaped wall that skirts around um, is probably the wall that Nehemiah and his, his people rebuilt. 
Um, it's about a mile and a half, I would guess, all the way around, which that's a lot of wall. All right, they're not doing the whole city, but a mile and a half of wall, if you picture walking a mile and every step of the way, you have to see a tall, thick, solid, strong, impenetrable brick wall. That's a lot of wall. So they probably got the old city of David in Jerusalem. And this excavation show, this may, may have been in Israel, this may have been part of the wall that they were working on. Um, so imagine you and your family, this is your assignment showing up there. And like, where would you start? Like, how many of those things could you even pick up? Uh, but, but this is just an example of what they were working with. And here's the next picture. Um, this is kind of the completed product that they're going for. And, and then the next picture, imagine if you got assigned to that part. Whoa, this is going to take quite some time. Uh, wow. This is quite a project. And the point is, not everybody is expected to be a leader, but Christ wants everyone in his church who's a believer to work for him somewhere. If you are a saved Christian, you are saved to serve somewhere. You're called a servant, which means you're willing to serve somewhere in the church. And we have so many different places where you can serve. We did, um, we did a tally several months ago, and we found out how many places there are to serve at Harvest Palace, and that count came in at 216 different spots along the wall where you could stand and go to work. Some of them are very low demand. 15 minutes a week, children's check-in once every other week. Okay, that's not super high demand. It's important. Um, worship team, it's going to cost you a night of the week where you're out and you're rehearsing. Uh, so we have very high demand ministry teams. We have very low demand ministry teams. We have both. So the point is there's a place if you have a little bit of time. There's a place if you have a lot of time. There's 216 spots along the wall where you can work for Christ. We also counted that if every team had its dream number, we would need 77 more people than we have now to give every team their full number. Which means there is plenty of room at the wall for you to step up and serve. And God is either calling you to lead or he's calling you to serve somewhere, but many must partner in the work. Uh, I tell you what, when I, was a, when I was a Christian, I was a new baby Christian back in like 1996, and like one of the first things I did at my first church was I helped with vacation Bible school, all right? And my heart was so filled with joy just to be this new believer. I didn't know anything. And I just showed up. And my job for the whole week at Vacation Bible School, you want to know what my job was? I got to hand out the juice boxes. I got to stand by the cooler. I got to open the cooler. And I got to hand out the juice boxes. That was my job. One of the first things I did. I got bored, and so I pelted a kid with an ice cube, and I accidentally started an ice cube riot. So then I didn't get to hand out the juice boxes anymore. I failed the first thing I did. I don't know where you're at in your walk with Christ, but maybe it's time to get on juice box duty. Start small. You get better at that, then you give him more things. Um, but you've got to start somewhere, and Christ wants you to work for him. And then whenever you show up on a ministry team, you can fill this in. Many must partner in the work, but write this down. Servants rally behind the leader. Servants rally behind the leader. What we see here is such a positive encouraging, unified response to the challenge the leader presents before them. And man, I just, on behalf of our leaders, am, am hoping that you will find a way to communicate your support for the people who lead your ministry or your small group. And, and to tell them, you know, I'm really thankful for what you're doing and the extra time you're devoting and the care that you're putting into my life. And, and I hope you'll affirm them and I hope you'll find ways to appreciate them and to support them. 
uh, maybe to embrace whatever assignment you've been given. Um, there are some who sadly are unwilling to fall underneath the leadership of another person and they kind of go home and they'd rather criticize or they'd rather fault find or they'd rather drag their feet if the leader asked them to do anything. And you know what? That's so counterproductive and it's not at all what we're observing in the story of Nehemiah. Um, your leader is going to be imperfect, okay? If they get it all figured out and they become perfect, trust me, Christ will just bring them to heaven right away like that. If they're still here, it's because there's work being done in their life, right? That's the truth, is each one of us is a project. Every one of us, your leaders included, self-included, our elders included. If you're in the room, if you're a human being, if you're alive, you are a project to God. In fact, turn to the person next to you and say, you're a piece of work. Go ahead. Just say it. You're a piece of work. You're here because God's not done with you yet. So give your leaders some grace. Give them some forgiveness. Help them if they're blowing something, if they're not doing it, if they're harsh. All right, help them, but hey, rally behind the leader. Nehemiah had 40 separate work teams spread out across a mile and a half. There's no way he knew what was going on everywhere. He just needed the people to be supportive of the leaders. Here's the next one. Many must partner in the work, rally behind the leader, and then servants work hard, work happy, work holy. Jot that down. Work hard, work happy, work holy. If the thing you did at your church actually was a wall, wherever you serve, in the nursery or on the road crew or tech team, let's say, it, let's say the product of your labor was a wall. Would the dedication and the effort that you put into your ministry result in a very sturdy, solid section of the wall? Or would it be rickety? What's the level of excellence you're bringing to the area God has privileged you to serve? What's the quality of construction? Um, are you on time to the ministry where you serve? Are you prepared? Are you spiritually minded and prayed up? Are you expecting God to do something through you each week? Um, are you aware of the people around you and waiting for God to do something through you that only He can? We, we have, um, behind the scenes, we have a conversation among our staff and our leaders, and what we say is we want to help people aspire to being adders, not subtractors. Meaning when we get you on the ministry team, we want to be clear about the expectations and we want to show you what excellence looks like and we want to tell you why it's important in the parking lot for you to be on time, to be smiling, and to be generous with people, especially if the weather's bad or whatever. It's because if people come into the lot and you don't even notice they're there or you're angry or you're mean to them, they're going to think our church is unfriendly and they're going to think our God is unfriendly. See? So we don't just need somebody in the parking lot helping people park their cars. I think people got that figured out already. We're trying to make an impression on people that shows them something about our God. See, so, so we want people to bring quality service wherever they might be serving. So be an adder, not a subtractor. We would define an adder as this. You're an adder if when you're on the schedule, things go better. Things go better. And you're a subtractor if when you're on the schedule, things go worse. Meaning the leader has to almost clean up after you and, and call you and be like, hey, you've been like late the last three times and we've got kids in the classroom and you're not there and this is causing a big problem or you know, we're really falling behind because of this. or uh, That would be a subtractor. And so we want you to aspire to being an adder, meaning fulfilling all of the 
all of the expectations the leader places on you, not a subtractor. Um, in addition, we ultimately want you to become a multiplier, not a divider. A multiplier first figured out how to be an adder and get the thing right. But second, a multiplier, perhaps on the worship team, figures out how to encourage the other people on the team. Like, man, Matthew, you're really stepping out and starting to sing, and, and we love that. Wow, sing with confidence. What am I doing? I'm helping him to do better. That's called a multiplier. I'm bringing better things out of the people around me. A divider would bring worse things out of the people around me. So I've been, I've been a subtractor for a while, but now I'm, I'm going to become a divider. I'm going to start talking to, you know, Andrew over here. Man, man. Mark's really not being nice to us this morning, is he? I mean, he's just really cracking the whip. I who does he think he is talking to us? That What am I doing? I'm dividing. I'm bringing worse things out of the people around me. So aspire to be an adder, not a subtractor. Aspire to be a multiplier, not a divider. Wherever you're serving in the church, and if you go with those two, I'm going to be an adder, I'm going to be a multiplier, the Lord is going to bless your work. So servants, work hard, work happy, work holy. The list of people in our church who are serving who I could commend would be longer than Santa's list, all right? But if I have to think of a few people who've just caught my attention recently, um, I'd first of all, I think of Norma O'Connell, who's already serving like crazy and teaching and serving in children's ministry, and, and then she just decides she's going to drive the bus of junior hires up to camp and stay there all week and counsel and then drive them back. And I'm like, wow, if there's anybody who can say, I'm doing enough, I'm not driving a bus full of junior hires up to camp. It's normal. I bet she's like, I've got the CDL. I could drive the, sure, I'll drive the bus and I'll stay up there. Wow. I'm so impressed by that. Uh, I think of Gary Wingles, who's been serving like crazy from the beginning. Uh, about a year ago, he began construct. He works for Dunkin' Donuts. He began construction of the world's largest fresh donut manufacturing plant in the area. The world's largest fresh donut manufacturing plant is right around here. Last week, they cranked out 120,000 dozen donuts. 120,000 dozen donuts. The building has caught fire in the night. Like, he, he has his hands full building the world's largest fresh donut manufacturing plant. And he still finds time to work for Christ here. He went to bed at 1.30 in the morning yesterday. And he's here this morning. And I'm like, so impressed. Wow. Anybody who can say, I don't have the time, I can't do it, my hands are full, it's him. And yet he's an all-star. So many must partner in the work. Uh, servants rally behind the leaders. Servants work hard, work happy, work holy. And here's the third sub-point here. The Bible seems to single out here a, a different group. It says this, to those refusing to work. You can write that down. To those refusing to work. Chapter 3, verse 5 Nehemiah just had his big rallying speech and the whole city was there and everybody rushed to the table to pick up the hammers and it says in verse 5, and next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. So there's this group of people over here as the hammers are swinging and the walls are being built up and the gates are being repaired. There's this group of people over here refusing to work. And it calls them out. It says they refused to stoop. They saw it as beneath them to serve their Lord, their God. And the Bible singles them out. These are people here who are content to watch all the people around them do the work, of which they will benefit from. 
and they're not willing to lift a finger. Um, this is just a good time for me to, to talk to those who've perhaps been at Harvest for six months or longer, and maybe you haven't found the place where you can work for Christ here. Um, Jesus wants you, as his follower, to also be his servant. And what we say here is every disciple at Harvest, the three W's, worship Christ, walk with Christ, and the third one is work for Christ. Meaning it's not just something unique to Harvest, it's something unique to Jesus that he really wants you as his follower to pick up a hammer and to get working on the wall somewhere. The Bible teaches that he's put his Holy Spirit in you and he's given you some spiritual gifts and that's how he's going to minister to the people around you. That's how he's going to be rebuilding their lives is your effort that blesses them. Um, And so the Bible is calling you if you're not in a place of ministry to find where you are supposed to be serving. Uh, maybe many churches you can go to won't expect you to work, but this, this just isn't one of them because we don't believe that it's biblical discipleship. Um, working for Christ is a delight. Working for Christ is a responsibility. And even Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. So to be Christ-like means to not just be one who lets other people serve you. Coming to church every week knowing that about 110 people it took to pull off the service you're enjoying but saying, you know what, I want to get on that field. You know what, I want to join that team. You know what, I want to get up to that wall. I don't want to just sit back and watch it happen. I want to be a part of it, and I want God to do some stuff through me. I want to have a significant role at this church. I'm going to be a builder. That's what the Lord is calling you to. Um, It says in the New Testament, 1 Peter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And let me just challenge you that after the service today, we have a, a table set up in the lobby. And we have a list of all the different places where you can serve. Uh, after the first service, it was mobbed. People who are either newer to harvest and they haven't really figured out where to serve or people who've been along longer than six months and they just haven't really plugged in. Hey, stop by that table, ask some questions, let's get some information out to you and let's get the hammer put in your hand this week. Okay, well, here's the third point. Nehemiah gets these people to work and he represents how some must plan the work and then many must partner in the work. But here's the third point. Then some will plot against the work. Some will plot against the work. When God goes to work in you, when God goes to work through you, mark it down, you're going to have people who try and tip over everything you're trying to put up. In chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 19, it says this, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Gashem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, I love that, we, his servants, Nehemiah sees himself as a servant among servants, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Hey, some will plot against the work. It's going to happen. When God starts changing you and teaching you and growing you and you get excited and start talking about it, there's going to be some people who say, well, just pipe down about that. Not everybody wants to hear about that. Oh, so now you're so perfect because you go to church and you're religious. Oh, la-di-da. So what are the rest? You're just going to hear it. 
People who scorn you, people who make fun of you. Oh, you're one of those, huh? Or you tell them about your church and how we do things and how we grow and what God's doing. They're like, oh, yeah, so your church is perfect, huh? Well, not everybody has a church like that or I don't even go to church. I don't need to go to church. And there's just the unrelenting voice of the person who's just trying to put out your fire. It's going to happen. Some will plot against the work. But learn from Nehemiah how to respond. What didn't he do? Well, he didn't say to them, Oh yeah? You know who I am? You know where I came from? Do you know what I could do to you? He didn't say that. He didn't say, Do you know who I know? I know the, the king of the whole empire. Do you know what I could get him to He didn't say that. He didn't go head on with, this, with these people. What he said was, I know him. That's what he said. You can say anything you want about me, Nehemiah. You know what? I know him. He said, the God of heaven will make us prosper. The reaction you should have to the people who try and knock you off your bike when you're up trying to get down the road, the reaction you should have is, the God of heaven is going to do this. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing unique about this church. The God of heaven is the one who's making all this happen. So you know what? Take it up with him. God's doing something in my life. What a reaction. The thing is, the threat didn't go away. Look at chapter 4. It says in chapter 4, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at all the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers, so he's got his gang around him, and of the army of Samaria, so he's pretty well connected, and he's got some soldiers, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then Tobiah, I don't like this guy Tobiah one bit. I kind of picture him as having this like little mousy voice. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yeah, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break it down their stone wall. <laughs> That's kind of the way I picture him. Verse 4, how does Nehemiah respond? Hear, O our God, for we are despised. He prays. Hey, how do you respond when family members are trying to put out your faith? How do you respond when a teacher or a boss or a friend is just trying to shut you up about all this stuff or, or make you pay when you put that comment on Facebook? Or how do you respond? You fight on your knees. Nehemiah brings his strongest, angriest, sharpest thoughts to God. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they've provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. How could he say these unkind things? But part of the problem is some of these people are likely Israelites who should know better than to desire that Jerusalem stay in ruins. They've got a political advantage. They're financially profiting from this city being in a pile of ashes. And so Nehemiah says, Lord, take them out. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. They're halfway there. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, so they're basically surrounded by opposition. North, east, south, west. They've got people all around them who want to kill them. 
Repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward. The breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Listen, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Prayer first, and then you take the threat seriously and you use whatever avenues or channels you have available to you. You can go to the police, you can go to your boss, you can go to your parent, you can go to your teacher, right? You don't just pray, you can pray and you can take whatever legal action you have to those who are trying to come against you. But we prayed and we set a guard day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. What we see here is two different things that will try and take you off wall duty. You can write these down. There's one on the inside and one on the outside. First, you will feel discouragement. You will feel discouragement. When you work for Christ and when Christ works in you, you're going to be tempted to give up. That's it. It's pointless. Too much, too tired, too busy. You're going to be tempted to give up. But don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't grow weary or get discouraged. It's been said it's always too soon to quit. And that's true. I met a man a few weeks ago at a Ravi Zacharias Ministries conference in Wheaton. He's been a senior pastor for 50 years. His name's Orville. He's from the West Coast. I was like, Orville, 50 years in ministry? Talk to me. Give me some tips. Tell me how you did it. And he's like, well, when things get hard, don't quit. And I'm like, next? He's like, nope, that's it. When things get hard, don't quit. I'm like, okay. Wow. Profoundly simple. But it's the same for you and me. The second, you'll feel discouragement. The second, you'll feel harassment. This comes from, from on the outside of you. Others attempting to oppose your progress convince you it's not worth it, tell you to give up, calling you to leave the old ruins be and just live the life that you had before God did anything for you. Some will plot against the work, but many must partner in the work and some must plan the work because God is at work. Listen, this is the good news, folks. Your God will rebuild what your sin has destroyed. He'll use people around you in your life to help. He'll use you in the lives of the people around you to help. But we've got to get to work. And I'm hitting the big pause button here as Nehemiah and the gang are surrounded by enemies who want to kill them and plotting an attack. And we're going to find out next week what happens. But we're going to pause it right now. Let's bring this to the Lord to thank him for what he's taught us this morning. Father, I truly am privileged to know that First of all, you would reach down and begin working in my heart, putting things back together. What hope that gives me. And I know that each one of us is under construction. None of us is complete or finished or even close to it. Thank you for that grace, Lord, to know that you see our imperfections and the cracks and the rubble, and yet you're going to work. Thank you for putting people in our lives who will help us. Father, thank you for this church and for the loving people who serve and those who courageously lead. Raise up more leaders and raise up more people to serve your purposes here and fill us with a joyful sense of significance when we know that our effort can make an eternal difference in the lives of other people. Praise you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.